Pray with me again real quick. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the revelation of Yourself that we see in it. And most importantly, God, I thank You for the revelation of, of Your Son that we see in this passage. And so, God, I pray that in these next moments that, that our perspective of You would be crushed, God, where it needs to be crushed, and God, that our perspective of you would be seen as you really are. God, what a, what a joyful thing to be in your presence, and to hear your word, and to know you, and, and love you, and, and, and sit in your midst, and I pray that you would teach us in these moments. God, I beg for your mercy to fall upon me, and uh, God, that you'd speak. Name. Amen. We are uh, we're working through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and I believe this is like the 21st sermon in this Gospel. And so we're we're working through. So if you're just joining us, uh, I'll try to catch you up to an extent. But um, if you're missing some pieces, then you might have to go back and look. But hopefully, you'll be able to just pick up right where we're at, um, and I won't be too vague. Um, but one of the things that we're going to deal with today is this issue and this idea. Seeing Jesus properly. Uh, one of the things that we see in this passage in Mark chapter 9 is this problem of a misperceived idea of who Jesus is. Okay, um, And not only did this happen in the, in the first century in this passage, but this was very prevalent and is prevalent today. Uh, one, of the, one of the fundamental problems, even in our own lives, where we fail to truly with Jesus stems from a problem of not seeing him properly, okay? And so uh, we're going to try to push forward a little bit and try to understand who is he and, and how can we come to know and grow and, and, and understand who he is. Um, because a lot of times, here's what we do, and tell me if you've ever heard of this or seen this happen, but a lot of times, um, the way we see and understand Jesus in our mind is, is the perception that we push upon him. Instead of seeing him who, who, as who he is and how scripture portrays him and allowing that to shape us rather than how our small, finite minds can conceive of him. Let me give you an example. While I was uh, working on this message this week, I was at a coffee shop in, uh, in Hazelwood and uh, I, I ran into this guy, uh, he was agnostic. Okay, and so I, I was talking and uh, one of the things that that he said was, uh, he's, like, I don't, he's like, I believe that there's a creator, but I don't believe that there's a love God. And I was like, well, why not? And he's like, there is too much pain and suffering in life for there to be a loving God. It's like, hmm, interesting. And here's, to some extent, understandably, but here's what this guy was doing. Is he was immediately equating love that the essence and the definition of love to be defined as no pain, no suffering. Okay? Rather than coming to the understanding, and probably someone needs to show him this, and whether I did a good or good job of, of doing that or not, I don't know. Hopefully I'll have another encounter with him. But what needs to happen is the realization that the Bible says that God is love. And so 
the nature and character of God, what we must do with that is we must push, put ourselves in submission to who He is and allow that to define things. Rather than saying, well, that just doesn't make sense, and so what makes what I'm going to press upon that. Does that make sense? Okay? And so what I want to do today is I, is I want us to, in this passage, to try to begin to say, okay, what does the Bible say that Jesus is? And how do we come to grips with that and not distort that in our understanding? Okay? Or our misunderstanding. Okay? So, um, here we go. Let's look, uh, let's look a little bit here. Um, uh, let's start reading at verse 2. Uh, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Um, this is a very uh, very famous passage. Okay, I'm sure if you've been in the church at all, you've probably heard a sermon on transfiguration. Uh, incredibly famous, well-known passage, uh, even outside of Christian circles. Okay? Uh, this idea of Jesus being on the mountain and transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Pretty pretty famous. Uh, just a little uh, etymology, okay? This word transfigured is, is similar and kind of comes from the word metamorphosis, okay? Which when we think of metamorphosis, we immediately think of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Okay? So I'm not going to try to tell you the parallels of that in Jesus in any way, but I'm just trying to get at the root, the heart of this word. Um, that there's this change that's happening that... These three guys, known as Peter, James, and John, which the Bible commonly refers to as the inner circle of Christ. Okay, we know there's 12 disciples, and then within the 12, there were three, and, and at times four, Andrew came into the picture at times, but there were three at times that Jesus would pull out from the 12 and teach deeper, or allow them to experience didn't. Okay, and, and if you look at Christian history, one of the things that we see is that these three guys, Peter, who would he become, come to be known as? The one that Jesus would say, upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, James and John were, they were brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee, but, but also they were referred to as the sons of thunder, which is, which is kind of interesting. But I think the connotation there is that, that their ministry as apostles held this boldness and uh, eagerness and upfrontness in forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. Okay? Um, John was known as the beloved apostle, and James was the first of the apostles to be martyred at the command of Herod with a sword. Okay? So these three guys who had this incredible encounter on this mountain were instrumental in what we know and, and understand to be biblical Christianity. Okay? And so that's, that's who we're... Just a little background there. Um, let's keep reading. Start over. And after six, six days, Jesus took James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, I want to go into a little uh, historical background that's going to be pretty essential in order for us to understand this. Okay, the um, issue of Elijah and Moses is pretty important uh, as far as Old Testament. Okay, we know Moses to be the great lawgiver, the one who the Ten Commandments were given to on Mount Sinai, the one who experienced the presence of 
in an incredible way to the point when he came down from the mountain, his face radiated. Okay, and people noticed that and people saw that. It's kind of funny. Like, I don't think he knew that. Have you ever been like talking to somebody and uh, they notice something about you that you don't know? Like maybe you got like some food on your face or something, um, and they're just kind of looking at you funny, and you're just kind of like, what's the deal? Like, I don't know if that's kind of the experience Moses had, um, but he experienced God. Uh, Moses was known as the founder of Israel's religious economy. And check this out. In my study, um, this blew me away. I found in my study that the phrase, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, I found that phrase to appear some 161 times in the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 161 times. The other famous people in the Bible, like Aaron, Isaiah, David, um, Joseph, Joshua, okay, all these other people, ten? Ten times. Now, I know it's communicated a little bit different than just the Lord spoke to Moses, but ten times compared to 161 times, which tells us what? Man, this guy knew Jesus. And even at specific times, we'll look at in a second, he spoke to him face-to-face like a friend. Um, That's incredible. Elijah, uh, known as the first and great prophet, a prophet was one who spoke for God, who communicated the message of God to the people. All right, Um, He was the one who, while Moses set out the law, uh, was the one who restored what was broken, who called people. a lot of times what a prophet does is he calls people to repentance. Okay, a prophet in our is a person who continually brings people back to the truth. When they want to run from the truth, we continually bring people back to the truth of God's word. Okay? And so Elijah was the one who would restore. He also had an incredible mountaintop experience that we're, we're familiar with. It's the experience where, remember when, when Jesus wasn't in the fire and, and he was looking for Jesus and he wasn't in the wind, storm, it was in the. So both of these guys here on this mountaintop experience in the Transfiguration also had incredible experiences. Okay, earlier on in the Old Testament. Um, but what's really cool about these two guys, both had famous departures from the earth. Okay, now you're probably familiar with the one with Elijah, the chariot of fire, which I don't know what that is, but chariot of fire taken up to heaven. Okay, and then you have Moses, who uh, some of you are probably familiar with this, but uh, he died on a mountaintop, and the scriptures tell us that God buried him, and to this day, no one knows where his gravesite is. Pretty cool. So both of these guys are pretty famous for that. So if you think about Moses and Elijah and the two descriptions that I just gave you, basically, here's what they are. They are the summer of the Old Testament religious economy. When it came to the religion of the Old Testament, they are the summary of it. Okay, in, bring, in, in starting it and then calling people to it and, and, and bringing it to where Christ appears. Okay, um, Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. 
for they were terrified. Okay, so this is a this is a funny moment because I know you've all been in situations where there's times where you're like, uh, I don't know if I should be here right now. Like maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe like growing up, whether like your parents got in a fight or something of that nature, and you're just like, I don't think I should be in the room. But what's really funny here, Peter, in this moment on this mountain where Jesus. It says that he, he changed to the point where, I don't know if you've ever tried to bleach something, but it, you couldn't even bleach it as white as But, like, it was this unbelievable encounter, and Peter's like, Jesus, it is good that we're here. And, and then, he's like, then he's like, let's throw down some tents. Which is interesting, because uh, notice what it says, that, that he was terrified. So, I don't know if it was a combination of like, uh, I don't really know what to say here. Some, you know, Peter was the one who was always outspoken, always had something to say. Even when he shouldn't, he was, he was up front, okay? And so, in this, in this instance, he's like, let's, let's throw down some tents, which, which probably to some extent indicates that he wanted to prolong what was taking place. Like, this is really cool, I've never experienced this. Like, we'll make a tent for Moses, and a tent for Elijah, and a tent for Jesus. But seeing that is that, Part of the perception problem of who Jesus was was that they saw, not only Peter, but James and John, thought that Jesus was similar to Elijah and Moses. Okay? Which he's not. And, and this story makes it very clear um, in that. Uh, in the Old Testament, let me connect this idea of tents. Uh, a tent was a temporary dwelling place, okay? which when we think of it with camping, we don't stay there forever. Okay, we stay there part time. Okay, but in the Old Testament, there was something referred to as the tent of meeting. Okay, which basically was a temporary dwelling place of of God's glory. Okay, and and actually, we read in Exodus thirty three, uh, at verse seven, it says, "Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp." Whenever Moses went out to the tent of meeting, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship him each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as Moses as a man speaks to a friend. Okay, so Moses has this desire to, to build these tents, which, which shows us that he's thinking that, okay, a tent of meeting was a way that God showed his glory in the Old Testament. So what, what, what Peter's doing here, as Peter's more the one who's speaking for the other two, um, the leader here, what he's beginning to think is that this idea of, of, of who the Messiah would be, okay, that Moses was the, the one who brought about the Exodus, right? helped begin to lead people out of oppression under Pharaoh, okay? And so in, in this idea, what, what he's beginning to think is that Jesus is the culmination of the second exodus, okay, of, of who the Messiah is, and, and he, he misses this idea of the transfiguration because what he sees in Jesus as being the, the one who transfers, transforms himself into this magnificent, glorious image as a representation of how he'll come in the second coming, okay? And so what he begins to think is that this is the end, 
that this is the culmination of the kingdom when in fact it was just a, a momentary glimpse of what the culmination of the kingdom would be. Okay, so and here's what he failed to realize. Last week, some of you are here, uh, Rick, Rick taught, uh, Rick is our, another one of our pastors, Rick taught on um, just the previous, previous part uh, in Mark 8, and one of the things that he talked about was this misconception that the, the disciples had about Jesus coming and suffering and dying, okay? And so, if you look, uh, and we won't, we won't really look at it, but if you look like in 31, he begins to tell them, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And, and all this stuff. And it says he spoke it to them plainly. Like sometimes he'd use parables and you'd have to kind of really look at stuff. But it says he just laid it out there and said it really clear. And you know what Peter did? He rebukes him. He calls him out. Like, what are you talking about? Okay, and then you know what Jesus does? He one-ups him and rebukes him. And, and then he uses this crazy phrase like, get behind me, Satan. Okay, and so Jesus had just finished explaining this to them. But they didn't get it. They still didn't get it because what they didn't understand was if, if, we, if we keep reading, we come to this realization that they didn't understand what the... ...understand that the glories, they, they had to accompany his suffering. Okay? Because the common misconception was this, that the Messiah would come and he'd reign in power to overthrow Roman... Okay? When, when in reality... Salvation was going to come through suffering and death on a cross. And then finally his resurrection. Okay? Look at 7. And the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, uh, you might be familiar with this cloud. Uh, if you look outside, there's someone in the sky. I'm sure you've seen one. We're working on that word with my dog. Moon is. She's coming to know what a star is. She hasn't got down the cloud deal. But uh, actually, this is a this is a pretty significant uh, reference in the Old Testament to the the manifestation of the presence of God, a visible manifestation of God's presence. Okay. So um, actually, maybe you've heard the term Shekinah glory, which isn't a term that we see in Jewish writings, but with that term, it basically we connect that term with with the idea of a cloud. Uh, this cloud of where Jesus shows himself uh, in his presence. Um, like, in, for example, uh, in Exodus 13, this is just after uh, Pharaoh uh, lead, I'm sorry, they, they free the Israelites from the oppression of Pharaoh. Okay? In Exodus 13, verse 20, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. To give you some examples, so you don't think I'm just up. For example, cloud. Uh, it appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai. This happened in Exodus 24. It passed by Moses as God covered uh, him in the cleft of the rock. Where that's a pretty. Um, in, in Exodus 33, it covered the tent of meeting and the new tabernacle with God's glory. It filled Solomon's temple on dedication day so the, to the point where the priests couldn't even enter the temple. Okay, that happened uh, in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. The same, uh, this cloud was the same glory Ezekiel saw rise from between the cherubim and move to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy. This was, this was in Ezekiel. Okay, and then uh, the final one we see in the Old Testament 
is in Ezekiel 10, where it moved over the, the temple. Okay? From that point on, Ezekiel 10, this point in Mark chapter 9, in this point in history, they had not seen Shekinah glory. So 600 years, they hadn't seen it. Okay? So this was a pretty crazy moment. And then there's this phrase in verse 7 that's, that I think holds a lot of weight. We won't spend a ton of time on it. But, but notice the phrase in verse 7 that says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay, so God shows up on the scene in this cloud okay, to manifest his presence and the glory of his son. And he substantiates the ministry of his son. This is my son. So basically, he's, he's speaking to the inner circle, the three top leaders of the twelve, who will go on to, to, to start the church and lead the mission that Jesus is pouring into them. And he's saying, hey, this is really, this guy really is who he says he is. He's like, listen to him. I think they kind of knew the fact that Jesus had been telling them over and over and over who he was, but they just weren't getting it. Which a lot of times, I think, is God speaking to us. Hey, he's real. Listen to him. Listen to him. An incredible challenge that we as a church need today. Verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Uh, I was really impressed with what one commentator said as I was studying this. Um, check this out. This is pretty cool. It says, uh, this is what all our experience, all our theology, all our work should come to. Seeing only Jesus. When this happens, our hearts honor Him in worship. We love all mankind as we ought. We give our lives in His service and we embrace the paradox of the cross. I think so many times we're so busy and life is so, there's so much coming at us. Um, like, so much, like the way a lot of times is we fail to live life, but life lives us. Okay? And so, in this moment, this idea that everything kind of went away and they saw Jesus. Only Jesus. In our busyness, like when your things are crazy at work, when you're watching your kid, when you're writing terms, dreading school starting again, okay? Whatever you're doing, are you looking to see the manifestation of Jesus? And even at times, pushing away the busyness to see only Him. I think that's a pretty, pretty incredible thought. I want you to imagine for a second with me. Imagine being Peter, James, and John. And experiencing this incredible picture of Jesus to show his divine nature that he's not just like Moses and Elijah. What would you want to do when that was over? You'd probably want to tell everybody, right? Can you imagine that experience? Especially being the three and wanting to go tell the other nine Okay, I did that math right? Okay. Um, wanted to go tell the other nine? Um, like, that would be this, this unbelievable experience. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I went backpacking. Actually, my wife and I are getting ready to go backpacking for our, our five-year anniversary, which we're pretty excited about. I went backpacking a couple years ago, and we had the experience where we had a mountain lion come into our camp. Okay? And, uh, and like, I couldn't wait to tell people. Like, I'm going to, you know, make sound really cool. Like, I didn't actually see the mountain lion, okay? It was just, the guy that was with us saw it, and it threw rocks at it. But there was a mountain lion in our camp, and I was sleeping right there, and I almost got eaten, okay? Not really at all. But, um, mountain lion, you know, 
We don't come near them very often. Okay, I was excited about that. Now, what, what we said was, all the junior hires are going to freak out. We cannot tell them. Oh, otherwise, they will not sleep for the next three nights. So we're like, come the last day, we'll tell them. Okay? Um, and so like, I was like, oh, I can't wait till the last day. They're going to think this is awesome. And the last day we told them, they were like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, so it was really good that we waited. Okay? Um, so this, this is crazy. Like, look at verse 9. It says, and they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. So it's like, man, wait, how are you going to put it, man? Oh, this is what I'm going to say, man. I saw Moses and Elijah. This is so crazy. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling Andrew. No, I want to tell Andrew. Like, they're just fighting about it. And Jesus is like, hey, keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. But, but continue reading, because what he says next answers why he says keep quiet, okay? He puts a time frame on it and says, tell no one what they have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So it was kind of like the instance of until the third day when we're not going to stay any more nights camping, then you can tell. Okay. Uh, another quick example. My father-in-law works for Boeing. Okay. And uh, he, I don't know what he is. Okay. He's a pretty brilliant guy. And he talks. And I'm like, can you put that in English? Yeah, he works for Boeing. And he's some type of engineer, which I think everybody works as an engineer, so that probably doesn't help at all. But, um, he, he's, his flight leaves shortly, and he's flying to Virginia. This is all I know. There's this convoy waiting for him and, like, eight other guys in Virginia. Okay, this is, like, seriously cool stuff that is interesting. Um, he's waiting for this convoy in Virginia, and basically what they're going to do is they're going to get there about midnight. They're going to check into a hotel, and then they're going to wake up, and they're going to go to this place where on the tractor trailer is something. Okay, and it is wrapped and disguised, and what it is, the shape of it, is not the way it looks, and the height of it, and the color of it, and like it's absolutely disguised. Okay, and so they have they're bringing this thing back. Okay, something for United States Air Force. Uh, okay, I don't, I don't even know. All right, they're bringing this thing back, and specific rules like what highways they can and cannot take, what time of day they can travel, they can and can't travel. Like by five o'clock. That thing's got to be off the road. When they stay at night, like, I don't think he's, he's getting back, I don't know, next week or something. Um, like, when they sleep, one person has to stay up with this thing all night, okay? And they have phone numbers to every FBI and every uh, law enforcement in all the different cities. And, and you know what? He can't tell me what it is. Dang it. Like, and this is his job. Like, ask my wife. They pester him all the time. Like, there's stuff that he, ta- he does and deals with, and maybe some of you have been in this scene, uh, that, that, that will never go public. Okay? Can you just imagine that scenario? Okay, this is kind of this scenario, but, but what's cool about it is they're like, all right, we got to wait. Uh, okay, we can, we can wait. We'll, we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, why? Why did they have to wait? Here's why they had to wait. Because... The meaning of the transfiguration was wrapped up in the meaning of his suffering. Okay, so here's what would here's the common problem that would have happened in this in this reality was if disciples back and they start telling everybody 
who everyone thinks the Messiah is going to be, this one who's going to come and reign and rule and power and overthrow Roman oppression, they're going to see, wow, that's really who he is. When what had to happen was they had to see what he continually told them was true, that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And that is going to give meaning to what the Messiah is. When in reality, what they thought him to be was glorified, majestic, like, yeah, coming to take over. And that wasn't what he was about at all. It was defined more by his humility. Look at verse 10. This is kind of funny. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, well, I'm going to stop there. So here's what they did. They didn't understand what the resurrection was. This would have been like. It would have been like saying, uh, you can't tell anyone about what until the ant eats the lion. Not like, oh, okay, you know, okay, once the ant eats the lion, then we can... Ant eats the lion. Like, what is that? And so the, the time frame that was given to them, they didn't even understand it. So like, all right, after Jesus, after Jesus rises from the dead, then we can... De- Jesus rises from the dead? What, is, what are you talking about? So it was almost like a riddle, because they didn't get it. They, they believed, they thought the re- resurrection was just everyone who died would rise again. It wasn't that Jesus would die after, after he suffers and, and, and rise again. They, they, didn't, they didn't get that. Crazy. Look at verse 11. And then we'll draw some conclusions. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Uh, this talk about is actually a prophecy that we see in Malachi chapter 3, where it says, Behold, I, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then it continues on in chapter 4, where it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of other destruction. So here's what the role of Elijah was. The primary task of Elijah was that he would come and prepare the way of salvation by preaching the message of repentance. Okay? Which sounds a lot like who? John the Baptist. Okay? Which, which we know from, from Matthew chapter 3. Uh, this probably sounds familiar. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Okay, so who is he speaking of here? Because here's what the Jews thought. The Jews thought that Elijah would come three days. But what, what really this was, was a picture of John the Baptist. Okay, not Elijah coming again, but John the Baptist to be the one who, Elijah was the Old Testament prophet who called people to repentance in the same way that John the Baptist is the New Testament type of Elijah that's continuing the same message. Okay? So, here's the deal. Here's where this... Let's try to... Some of you are like, okay, enough with history stuff. But 
we got to understand that if we're going to understand what. Okay? I want to try to make this practical for the in the last couple minutes. Um, think about the word perception. Think about how, how we perceive things. Or just what that word means. And here's, here's what I want us to begin to think about. Is the idea that we so desperately need to see a transfigured Christ, but to actually wrap our arms around a transfigured Christ and embrace Him as our own. Okay, That's, that's what I want us to, to look at in these last couple of minutes, is how do we begin to, to see, as is, see Him? Because there's so many that, that sit in chairs like this and just see Him, and like, wow, God's great, and like, yeah, we sing great songs, and yeah, I give my tithe, but never come to embrace, actually embrace Him as their own. Which isn't biblical Christianity at all. At all. Because in verse 3, notice, go back to verse 3, it says, And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could, on earth could bleach them. So this idea of, of, his, of his glory of the reality of who he is. Can I, can I step on your toes real quick? Uh, your view of God is too small. Whatever your view of God is, is too small. I don't care if you, you have a doctorate in theology. It's bigger than my view of God, okay, but whatever. But whatever your view of God is, it is too small, okay? And if we... It would change our our own problems. Because we're so... Self-centric, that we miss so much of understanding who in the world he is. And what's crazy about the story is it sounds like a crazy deal, like, oh yeah, we can't really believe that, you know, they're just making stuff up. But actually, Peter, one of the ones who was there on the scene, he writes this later in Second Peter. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this, and this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Let me make a connection here. This same Peter that said he was an eyewitness of His majesty... Moments before Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified is the same Peter who denied him. Wait a second. How in the heck could you have such an unbelievable experience in seeing Jesus as He will come in the second coming when He returns for His church and then deny him? I want to look at Second. I want you to turn. We're actually going to turn to Second Corinthians three, because I think fundamentally where this breaks down is that we need to continually get our minds off of ourselves. So I want you to flip with me to Second Corinthians chapter three, beginning at verse seven.
Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because its glory, I'm sorry, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because its glory, which was being brought to an end. So this is talking about Moses who came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and his face was just radiant with glory. Okay? It's saying that that, thing, that glory is coming to an end. That it, the fulfillment is found in the person of Christ. Okay? Keep reading. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being, surpa- or for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will this, or much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. When they read the Old, old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Notice that phrase. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, and here's the whole point of why I want to read this. And we, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice what it says that transformed into His image, not when we look at ourselves, but when we look at Him. John, another one who was on the same scene, this is how he put it. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we, have, and what we will be has not yet happened, or has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. As He is. Man, we need to grab hold of that. Seeing Him as He is. Uh, I want to end in Romans 8. And then I'll shut up. Flip to Romans 8 with me. Uh, On a limb here. To say that that are Struggling. I'm going to go out on a limb here to say that there are some people in here that come into these doors pretty broken and pretty beat up and seeking to find meaning and purpose in pain and meaning and purpose in where in the world am I at and what in the world am I doing. And you know what? To some extent, that's all of us. Because we're all a broken people that are in need of seeing Jesus and allowing the, the transfigured Christ to change us. And so I want to I I end in Romans 8 and, and try to just encourage you and point you to the truth here. There's therefore now, I'm at, I'm at verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's some of us here. Continually setting our minds on ourselves and our problems and our situations. And you know what it says? It says that that, that leads to death. Somebody, you just have death all over you because you continually focus on, man, how do I get over this? How do I, how do I fix this? How do I... But keep, keep reading. Five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That, that's a calling to see the, the, the glorious, transfigured Jesus. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we believe and celebrate here every single day. That we were dead. We were bad and we had to be made good. But that we were dead in our sin. And that only by the cross of Christ are we made alive. And that the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is the same resurrection power that is living in me. And that I must keep my gaze on. Not on my to the flesh to live according. for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear some of you that's what you're living in right now a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons and by him we cry abba father that's this intimacy that's this embracing the message of a transfigured Christ that would suffer and die for us. 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children and heirs. Abide with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been grown together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Again, are groaning inwardly, waiting, hoping. As we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's this reality, church, that, that we sit in this moment and in our pain we see hope. Not just this like, man, I hope something works. But like, no, there's a confident expectation in the person and the work of Christ. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Here's what's happening. This Peter who saw a transfigured Christ, what did he do? In the moment of his denial of who he saw transfigured, what did he do? He embraced the message of Elijah and the message of John the Baptist in in repentance, which is this process of sanctification that we're walking through to continually run hard after Jesus, but there's times we fall flat on our face and we run back to him in repentance. That's the message of Elijah. That's the message of John the Baptist. That's the message of the gospel. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified. Or justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then the greatest verses of the Bible. What then shall we say if God is be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him gracious? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. Of God, who indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Papa, I run to you now. Oh God, how I desperately need to see you as you are. God, not just to see you, but to believe you, to embrace you, to know that you are a God who in your wrath made a way that your wrath would be absorbed by your Son and that you would offer a free gift of salvation to those who would believe by faith in you. And so God, we in this in this moment as we as we suffer, as life is hard, we embrace God not ourselves, but the reality of a resurrected transfigured Christ who will one day come and alleviate our pain. And so God, we fix our eyes not on what is seen on our problems, but God on what is unseen. And we find all kinds of hope today in you. In Christ's name, amen.